I don't know what happens or not. Uh, Sorry, that's, oh. we're just going to... Is that right? Is that yeah, just that's fine. Great. Okay. Right. Uh, but we are in the book of Acts. As a church over the summer, we've been journeying through uh, the book of Acts, and we've been considering and learning what it looks like for the church to get out there with the gospel. And, and we've looked at various things. We've looked at proclaiming the gospel and what that looks like. We've looked at the opportunities that God sets before us to share the gospel. And last week with Lucy, we looked at actually often when we preach the gospel, we will face opposition and there will be resistance to it. And we finished this week in our series by considering who it is that the church is called to share this good news with. But if we're being encouraged to get out there with the gospel, who is out there? Who are we to go to? And how do we do that? Um, a couple of weeks ago, I was at um, New Wine. <coughs> Other Christian festivals apparently are available. But I, sorry, I was at New Wine um, with Youth for Christ, who I work for. We were running a youth cafe there. Um, and I was wandering around site one day with one of my colleagues. And this guy came up to me. And So at New Wine, they have New Wine Radio. So he came up to me and stuck a microphone in my face. I have to confess, normally, if this would happen to me on the street, I'm, I would run a mile. But when you're at a Christian festival, you have to be nice. So I was like, so I was like, oh yeah, sure, I'd love to talk to you. So, so he stuck this microphone in my face and he said, right, first thing that comes into your mind, always dangerous, said, first thing that comes into your mind, what is the thing that you love most about your church? I mean, you know, you know what could have come out. And I just said, Sort of thought about it and really panicked, and then I just went, uh, I really love that my church loves people. And then I went, oh, I didn't know that that's what I loved most about some things, but it is. And then my colleague, Josh, who was with me, got asked the same question. He went, oh, I really love that my church loves Jesus. And I was like, oh, Sunday school answer. I was like, just assuming that my church loves Jesus. But, uh, but yeah, I really loved that St. loves people. And sometimes I think that God actually does give us sort of a specific burden, a specific heart for the things that move him. And I see that in this church and something that I've just loved and been so moved by over the last year as I've been getting to know you, is that you love people. And that is what living space is all about. For some of you, you have been investing for a really long time, your hearts and your wallets and your time in these bricks and mortar that are being transformed. But it's not really about that, it's about the people. And you're doing it because you love people and God has given you his heart and his burden for people because Jesus loves people. In John chapter 12, verse 32, Jesus says, when I am lifted up, I will draw all people myself. That's his plan. He loves people and he's calling all people to himself. Not everybody will say yes, but he's calling all people to himself. And this evening, we're going to look sort of alongside that verse at these three stories in, in chapter 16 of Acts about three people, really, who will help us explore and think about the initiative of God to reach people. So if you want to open your Bibles, um, we are in chapter 16, which is on page 1049 of the Church Bibles. And we're actually going to start reading at verse 11. So just as a bit of background, what's happened here is that Paul and Silas have been travelling around and they've kind of picked up Timothy on their way. Um, and their plan, which is interesting, was to go 
that's kind of what they've been sort of fighting for, and the Holy Spirit's been going, no, 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 not going to Asia. And then Paul has this sort of uh, dream, vision, where he says that someone in Macedonia is going, come over here, come over here and help us. And so Paul is obedient, and they go, and they end up in this city called Philippi, where they have actually been to before, and we pick it up in verse 11, and I'm going to read, just so you know, to verse 34. So, from Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day we went on to Neapolis. From there we travelled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia, and we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river, where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman from the city of Thyatira named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth. She was a worshipper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptised, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the Spirit left her. When her owners realised that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, that's the jailer, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open, and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell, trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household, then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. Amen. A couple of years ago, I invited a friend of mine to church who wasn't a Christian, and uh, we had um, we were at uni together, and um, so he'd known that I was a Christian for a long time, and I just thought, it's really time that I can invite him to church, and uh, he came along with me, and it's always that thing, 
Uh, and if you're here with somebody this evening and they've invited you, um, they'll be sitting next to you going, oh, I hope they're okay, I hope they're okay, I hope they're okay, I hope this isn't weird. And uh, anyway, so I kind of sat there, the whole service going, we're not always thinking, we're not always thinking. And at the end, he mingled with some of my friends and kind of chatted to people. And then we left and I said, Steve, you know, how did you, how did you find it? What do you think? What were your first impressions? And he thought about it for a really long time. And he said, Ellie, he said, you're quite, you're quite an eclectic group of people. He said, I can't think of anywhere in the world that you would get that group of people all hanging out together at the same time. And I thought, yes. That is Acts chapter 16. Because we get a businesswoman, a middle class government worker, a mix of different ethnicities, different social backgrounds, a marginalised, broken, poor and oppressed woman, and an oppressor all meeting with the gospel, all being found together in Christ. This passage in Acts is a beautiful example of who the gospel is for, who Jesus is for, because he's for all people. He loves and is desperate for people to come to him. Every character in this story couldn't be more different from one another, and yet we find them all in a space, interestingly, that is on the edge, that is on the outside of something. We meet Lydia, um, she is a businesswoman on the outside of the city. Interestingly about Lydia is that we know that she was from Asia originally, so she's not, she's not in her hometown, this isn't where she's from. And we also know from this passage, it says that she was a worshipper of God. She didn't know Jesus, but there was something in her that was seeking to worship God. Now she's been in Philippi for a little while. Philippi, Paul's been there before, so the church has started to grow. But for some reason, she doesn't yet know Jesus. No one's told her the gospel. This is a woman who's on the edges, on the outskirts of things. We meet a slave girl who's very much on the edge of society. She's marginalized. She doesn't even belong to herself. She's owned by somebody else. And we meet a jailer who arguably is on the edges, on the outside of morality. He works for an oppressive regime. And yet the gospel relevantly and transformationally meets with each one of these people. You see, the gospel always seeks out those who are on the outside. The gospel is for the forgotten and the outsider and the broken and the morally repugnant. And the reason that I know that is because the gospel is for me and the gospel is for you. You see, whatever our story, we're all outsiders that get invited into the kingdom of God. We were all once his enemies, whether we knew it or not. But Paul writes in Romans, he says, he shows his love for us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. The gospel is for all people because it's God's initiative towards the people who are separated from him. And we're all included in that. You didn't deserve what Jesus has done for you. And none of us were more predisposed to it than somebody else. Paul goes on to write in his letter to the Romans, he says, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There is no one who is more or less in need of saving than anyone else. Amazing grace has saved you because you were lost and you needed to be found. And the wonderful 
thing about the gospel is that it's the great leveler amongst humanity because we all come to it from the same place, from the outside. It's why the gospel is able to be relevant to every single person because while we might identify ourselves as human beings as certain things, so whether we identify ourselves as Jew or Greek or while we put ourselves on the sliding scale of sin or whether we identify ourselves by our career or our marital status or any of the other ways that we do it, Jesus doesn't. That is not how he sees you. That is not how he identifies you. He looks at all his children that he made and he says, oh, you are lost and you all needed to be found, and none of you can do it for yourself. None of you can do this for yourself. A few years ago, I was um, leading a group on an alpha course. By this time, I was a Christian, but, um, and, uh, but I love alpha for obvious reasons. And, uh, and in our group, there was a young man who was a Muslim, um, and it was so wonderful having him in our group. He just came sort of hungry to talk, and uh, he was just so curious, and we had these amazing conversations. And we got to um, the week on Alpha where we were talking about um, what it means that Jesus is God, that that's what Christians believe, that actually God comes to us in the person of Jesus. And he couldn't get his head around the idea, it was like a big sticking point for him, the idea that God comes to us. That holy, other, massive God would squeeze himself into flesh and bone. He said that's blasphemous to me. He said that idea was preposterous. And then he said this thing, which I've stolen a lot of times over the years because I think it is so brilliant. And he said, hey, he said, it's like you're trying to fit the entire ocean into a bucket. And I just remember sitting there going, yeah.
I suppose it's a little bit like being in a cricket test match and trying to chase down 358. <laughs> Ruth just looks appalled. <laughs> okay, this is impossible. It's much bigger than that. It's much crazier than that. But the things that we think of, the things that we imagine could happen, the, the people that we imagine the gospel could transform are beyond actually what we can imagine because God can do it. And so one of my questions to you tonight is who is your heart breaking for? Where are you aching to see change? I love the, the time of intercession that we have this evening. I love that we do that regularly every week. Maybe it's someone deeply close to you. Maybe actually it's, it's more personal. Maybe it's to do with your own heart. But maybe it is a wider perspective than that. I think it was Carl Barr who said, pray with your Bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other. What can you see? What moves you? Stirs you? What sets you on your soapbox in the park with your friends that annoys them when you talk too long about it? What incenses you? One of the reasons that I felt called out of um, my previous role um, working with young mums is because God just started to stir me to see the church respond and step into issues with the next generation, with our young people, particularly in this city. And, and I, I don't know much about it, I'm having to learn, it's a new thing that God has laid on my heart. But it's not okay that kids are being killed on our streets. Children, let's call them that, that's what they are. It's not okay. A couple of years ago, while I was working in my last role for a charity called Riverbank, um, during that time, some of you will remember it, there was a lot of stuff on the news about the refugee crisis in Syria. It really ought to still be on the news, but it's not. But at the time, there was, and we were talking about it a lot, and God just started to lay something on my heart. And what's really interesting is I don't, I don't have any background of working with refugees. I, uh, particularly in that area of the world, I don't know very much about the Middle East. I didn't know much about um, Islam. I didn't know... It's just anything really, it can't speak Arabic. It's just, I'm completely ill-equipped and unequipped to be able to deal with this issue, but God laid something on my heart. And we started talking about it as a charity, and we stepped into um, a scheme that the Home Office run called Community Sponsorship, um, which is basically where the Home Office enable and help church and faith-based groups to welcome a refugee family. And the idea is that you sort of welcome them and provide a home for them and look after them for a couple of years to help them integrate into a new life. Um, we didn't really have the money for it, we didn't have the expertise for it, but we felt like God said, oh, I want to do this. And I guess what we decided to do was make a space in our charity and in the church that I was in at the time to go, well, we don't know how this is going to happen, but we're going to make a space so that this family might be welcome, so that someone might come here. And it took a really long time. It took so long that I'd actually left before the project had finished. We were still waiting and still petitioning and still trying to build something. But six weeks ago, this beautiful Syrian family arrived and they stepped off a plane in Heathrow, rescued from horror, with a whole destiny ahead of them. And we love them according to who God says they are and what he's done for them. And the rest is up to him. Our job is to make a space in our lives and in our church and in our charity 
and say, we're going to make space for you, a space for you to live, a living space, if you will. And God does the rest. And I'm learning really slowly that the gospel enables us to reach anyone, to love anyone, and that no one is beyond him, and nothing is beyond him. The jailer in this story was not beyond him. This is a hard and brutal man. Paul and Silas have been flogged. The skin is literally hanging off them. And there's no suggestion in this passage that when they come into prison that they are tended to or looked after or cared for. In fact, they're taken to the inner cell and locked in stocks. I can only imagine the state that they were in. The man who's been put in charge of them is a tough guy. And into this space that he's in come Paul and Silas. And they don't moan. They don't ask to be freed from it. They don't condemn. They don't go, me. he's too hard for us to you know, try and change. And so what they do is they fix their eyes on Jesus and they worship. And Jesus shows up. You know the story, an earthquake, and it's sort of beyond what I can imagine. And the doors fly open and the chains fall off. And this jailer is at the end of himself because actually if these prisoners escape, he's a anyway, so he's kind of just going, isn't it? There's a, he's completely without hope. He's at the end of himself. And do you know what they say to him? These men who absolutely had the opportunity to bail out of there, they go, don't harm yourself. We're here. And they make a choice not to save themselves. But to save him instead, it is the most unimaginable act of mercy to a man who's shown them no mercy. And what I love about it is it's the gospel, because what happens is Paul and Silas choose to take an unjust punishment so that this man can go free. It is a glorious picture of what Jesus does for us. They embody the gospel to a man who's so different to them, but they see him according to all that God has made him to be, and not by the sin that separates him from them in that moment. See, the gospel proclaims a different truth about who he is and who he can be, and they choose to see that. And so they stay, and they share that space, and they offer him hope, and they work it out with him together. That is what our living space is all about. And of course, it's gonna look great, and I know that those of you who've been in this church longer than me are really excited about having more than one toilet. Like, I know that there's some really practical things that are really exciting. But actually, we get to offer a space to the Lord and say, teach us how to be living sacrifices so that others will go free. And I really believe that's what's going to happen because that, that's what the Bible says. It's about the people. He loves the people and he's given us a space to share where actually we're all going to become more like Jesus because church, that is the end game, that we become more like him. See, this jailer, you see, he receives grace and mercy through Paul and Silas' sacrifice. And he says yes to Jesus, hallelujah. And then what happens, the first thing that he does as he bathes their wounds. He lavishes compassion on them, takes them into his house, he sets food before them, he tends to them, he loves them. I just think that sounds like Jesus. 